Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. Hello, I'm Cynthia Zarin, and I'm a writer. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Venice is a city of water, and it's a city of mirrors. Every place in Venice, there are mirrors, and the water shines back at them, your own face shines back at them. And I, I think you kind of do see... Uh, your own visage. Hi, it's Lucas Werner. We recorded this episode recently with Cynthia Zarin, the award-winning poet and longtime writer at The New Yorker. This spring, she was due to publish a book of deeply meditative personal reflections on two of her favorite cities, Venice and Rome, as the latest in our Ekphrasis series at David's Werner Books. But then the COVID pandemic hit Italy particularly hard, where we happened to be printing that book and generally disrupted the publishing industry all over the world. While we await the arrival of Cynthia's title, Two Cities, we decided to call her up over Zoom to talk about her deep ties to Venice and Rome and to celebrate Italy and the joys of travel in general, something we all miss. Plus, we asked her to read two special passages from the book, which are both completely transporting. They really make you feel like you are in those cities with her. You'll have to excuse the sound quality, which we're getting better at as we record more episodes remotely. But we thought it was the right time to talk to Cynthia, as it just happens that this week, Italy has begun to loosen up the longest lockdown in Europe. We hope that Rome, Venice, and the rest of that country can come back safely. In the meantime, Cynthia can take us on a little trip there. Why don't we start... Cynthia, by hearing a little bit about the genesis of the first essay in Two Cities, right? The Venice essay. Um, because these are very personal and descriptive and lyrical, but how did that first piece really come about? Well, that first piece came about really by accident. It, but yes and no by accident in that I th- I had been, two things happened. One is I write in the piece, I had been thinking for various reasons that were unclear to me about going to Venice for many months. I then got an assignment. I, it ended up not running because they stopped the series, I think it was from Newsweek, where they were asking various writers to write about places that they loved. And you could take 2,500 words or something like that to do it. And I I got a big list and saw all the different places that people had gone to and and miraculously nobody had written about Venice. So I said, well, I'll I'll go to Venice. So um, I went and I really, at that point, I had somewhat lost track of the assignment, but I thought I should just start writing. So I did what I always do in Venice, which was to walk all day. But then in the evening, I'd sit down with my glass of wine before dinner, and I would write about my day and what I was thinking 
and feeling and about the trip with no particular plan, except that I would cut it down to 2,500 words. And I did that uh, for a week, I guess. And I ended up with uh, a draft of the first piece, which ended up being totally unsuitable for Newsweek. <laughs> Things began to change and it became a kind of stream of consciousness following my thoughts around the city. And then when I came back and it was just, it was in fact much longer, I think at one point, about 15,000 words. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because we started thinking about this book project, you and I, I want to say 18 months ago. Maybe you can talk about the idea of the kind of, of the sister essay, as it were, of the second city and why you picked Rome and what the two cities sort of say to each other in your sense of them. As you know, I love Rome. And you, you kind of said, well, why don't you go and write about something about Rome, which for me was a dream assignment. First time I went to Rome, um, that, to Italy, I was in college and I went with my boyfriend the way many people do. And I, we, you know, like most college students had, we didn't have a scent and we camped and we stayed in terrible places and so on. And, but I absolutely fell in love. And I remember we were in Venice. We couldn't even afford to stay in Venice. So we were staying in Padova and we were sitting with our sandwiches that we had, of course, just bought the makings of the sandwiches. We couldn't even afford to buy sandwiches on the steps of Santa Maria della Salute. And we were looking across the Grand Canal. And I thought to myself, I've had very few prescient moments in my life. My life is a continual surprise to me. But I sat looking across the Grand Canal and I thought, I will come here again and again and it will be different. And that turned out to be right. I, I felt some people, I think I say, perhaps in the Venice piece, a friend that I was with in Venice during that trip said that she always felt uncomfortable in Venice. She felt that it was too much. And I think I um, loved the too muchness of Venice and the combination of the extreme beauty and the quiet and, and even the press. There's, there's been nothing that I, where I, I just felt right away, I, I want to come here again and again. I think this is true for many people. From the first visit through some of the other ones, there's a sort of entanglement with questions of romance, right? The, 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 the kind of, I think, grandeur of the city, the aloneness of the city, and, you know, in your piece, also the memory of romance and the way that plays into the experience of the present. Yes, I think I say, um, this isn't in the Venice piece, but in the Rome piece, that I remember sitting on the Spanish steps at 19 and then watching my youngest daughter try on a dress at Valentino and that almost the girl on the steps, which is right next to Valentino in, in, in Rome, that that girl had improbably become this girl's mother, you know, that, that somehow for me, I see myself coming and going. And there may be something, Lucas, about, you know, you don't see, I've lived my whole life pretty much in New York, and I certainly see myself coming and going here. But I think when you visit a place, you remember so particularly how you felt 
at the time, the last time you were there, or the times before that. I mean, I remember when I was a little girl, my my um, parents had a house on on Cape Cod, and there was a big kind of window, and if you stood on the cellar door, you could see yourself in the glass. And whenever we came back to that house, I would run to the cellar door and look at my reflection to see how I had changed. And I think that there's something uh, certainly reflective particularly about Venice. I mean, Venice is a city of water and it's a city of mirrors. Every place in Venice, there are mirrors and the water shines back at them. Your own face shines back at them, in them. And I, I think you kind of do see uh, your own visage. And for me, my life has been so tied up with the people I love and, and the places that I love. And I think Part of my relationship with Venice is a love affair. It is, of course, you know, a time when no one's going anywhere. And I think in a funny way, this book, which would have come out, you know, in the next month or two, is particularly, is strangely particularly timely now because it is this transporting sense. I mean, how do you think about these projects, or at least maybe we start with the Venice essay in light of, of where we are? you know, currently all, you know, speaking to each other from a distance. I'm sort of curious if they've changed in your mind. Well, I think right now there's a, for me, about Italy, about Rome and Venice, there's a quality of heartbreak. I think for all of us, the pictures that we've seen, particularly of Bergamo and are just so terrible. These are places many of us know well and we've visited and they're not they don't feel at all remote to me. I'm in pretty constant contact with my friends in Rome and elsewhere in um, the country. And it is, it's devastating. You know, we are now becoming here in New York, where I'm speaking from, a mirror of that calamity. You know, there are people I've spoken to who say, I, you know, I'm going to be thinking twice about getting on an airplane. I can't wait to be able to get on an airplane and yeah. to go back to Italy. I, I feel that I very much want to, to make that connection and, and be there. And, and we'll do so as soon as it's safe, safe to do that and to, to you know, be part of that life again. If you close your eyes and put yourself back in Rome, what are you experiencing, you know, and, and I mean, back in the memories of Rome, like, what is it that you're missing that you can't wait to visit again? You know, it's funny. I don't know why I'm so happy in Rome. I think I say, and I, if I remember correctly in, in the piece um, about Rome, that my, my great friend Massimo, who is a jazz composer, always says to me when I say I want to come and live in Rome, uh, you'll be bored in six months. And I, I haven't spent six months in Rome, but I've certainly spent two months. And I find um, I often stay at the American Academy in Rome, uh, which is right above the city, above Trastevere. And I, I walk down the Via Garibaldi and I am absolutely happy. I am happy passing the shops. I'm happy going in to get a coffee. Um, I'm happy 
crossing the Ponticisto and walking up to have a drink um, at the bar with my friends. Um, there's a feeling for me of at-homeness in Rome, which is, and the idea of a part of my life occurring there, which I really am at a loss to explain. Um, it, I am enamored. You know, you never can really tell why you fall in love with a person, can you? I mean, you can say lots of things, but none of it's all completely meaningless. So I, for me, it's the same uh, feeling about Rome. Just um, I am happy when I come in from the airport and I see the, the, the highway sign that says Roma, and I feel always near, near tears when I depart. Do you have those transcripts in front of you? Yes, I do. I believe this is, is kind of towards the end of, of the piece. Shadows gathering on the bridge, dappling the bright clothes of tourists leaning over to take photographs. And the accordion player this evening, despite the heat, inexplicably wearing a kilt. The foot traffic slowed. My friend and I, who is in Rome for a week from New York, made our way around the Piazza Trelusa, where in the half-dark a crowd listened to an Italian reggae band. The woman who holds out a palm for coins at Santa Maria and Trastevere sat on the steps, her feet bare and filthy, her head under a soiled bandana, her face turned up to the music and the moon. A little girl twirled in front of the speaker, rapped, her dress the color of a lemon candy wrapper. At the restaurant, Zio Umberto, chaos. They are overbooked, they have a table, a table for four, it is for two. The right leg was balanced on a matchbook. We sit at the table cantilevered over the cobblestones. It is 10 in the evening, a couple at the next table wants only dessert. The answer is no. I am talking about the ghost and my friend interrupts me. You know, you'll never get over it. And then, have you blocked his number? That's the key thing. Around us, Roman women in various stages of undress vied for the attention of the waiters. Weeks later, when I return to New York, I will button the button of my dress I leave open in Rome. Rome is a city of unrequited passions, of things going wrong of streets that head nowhere, that once headed somewhere, of runes and headless statues. The storia si ripeta, or the story repeats itself. Or as Elizabeth Bowen wrote, experience isn't interesting until it begins to repeat itself. In fact, till it does that, it is hardly experience. When does one know it's time to leave? What clock face names the hour? Rome is a city of churches, but not of clock towers. It is almost impossible, as Bowen says, to make the rounds of the churches, or even to list the endless procession of saints. But it is even more impossible to do what I want, which is to know in every detail, each statue, monument, piazza, stone, to be better educated in the Quattrocento, or the history of the Palatine, or the different varieties of travertine. Instead, in Rome, I lie down after lunch, there is no help for it. In the mid-afternoon, the gates on the shops have come down. Sparrows are picking at the crumbs under the tables in the chatteria while the waiters sweep up 
a broom in one hand and a cigarette in the other. In bed, my arms crossed above my head. I imagine myself in a drawing by Opicinus, my forehead in the Giancolo, my body crossing the river to the Via Nazionale, and in the valley between my knees, the Borghese Gardens, where Bernini's Daphne, fleeing, is forever turning into a rustling welter of leaves, and beyond that, the Villa Ada. A map of a corporal city in which the body is imposed as it traces a route around and around the piazzas, crossing and recrossing the bridges. In Rome, one is at once the spider, the web, and the fly. By four, it is equally impossible not to go out again in the city, and then by six, the day says enough. The Italian basta, which means so many things, including for a day or a moment, simply the inability to go on. And then one finds oneself in retreat to the bar under a canopy in the Palazzo Farnese, or better, the dim paneled recesses of the bar at the Hotel de Inglaterra, where 60 years ago, Elizabeth Bowen despaired of a dead time in the Roman afternoon, the oblivion hours when nothing can be done or seen or in the torpor even thought. At the bar on a last day in June, escaping from the heat, I settled down with my book. My only companion is a woman dressed in denim, pierced with metal studs, holding a lapdog, who spends an hour on her phone arguing quietly with someone who seems to be her brother about the bills he has run up at a house they share in Puglia. The aim of a day of walking is to be engulfed, a contest of wills that leaves one of the contestants vanquished, a guess to say which one, as if one could somehow wed oneself to the city, useless, whether to a city or the beloved, enough. But then one returns with an excuse, a lost glove, a second thought, or barring that, one gives up and cruises the streets like a flaneur. Thank you, Cynthia. I was reminded of something you said earlier in the conversation, which you said before, which is that your life is a continual surprise to you. Um, and I was curious if you would say something about that. Hmm. Did I say that? I guess, um, well, I mean, it is also continually surprising. I mean, you know, Luke is even, you and I have known each other in different ways for a long time. And here we are talking about Rome in the middle of a pandemic. That's <laughs> surprising, isn't it? It's so rich with the kind of surprisingness. And, and I think you see that in the attention to all these details in the city. And, um, and it really feels like the city, despite it being a repeated experience or one that you have, you know, willingly repeated often, continues to be surprising in all these significant ways. There's no end to Rome. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's true of other cities, but Rome in particular, you know, you, you, you go there many times and then somebody says, have you ever seen St. Evo or have you ever been to this restaurant or have you been to this neighborhood in this shop? And it's always just, no, I haven't. And you're caught, you know, with Roman friends, they're always saying, you know, now we're going to go to this party and you'll see a view you haven't seen before. And you think, oh, no, not really. Yes. You know, here we go again. And then you get there and you see something you've never seen before. It's a different kind of light. And 
I think Rome is particularly like that because you can be, you know, shopping for something, I don't know, like a new com- new computer cord or something in Monty, and you're in the shop that's selling you your 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 new piece of electronic equipment and you walk out and you're walking past the the, the cars on the that are parked so closely on, on the street and you look up and there's an angle of, of the forum that you haven't seen before. So there is this feeling not only of around the corner but underneath. And so it really is a city in which if you are interested in memory, you're the memories that you make are always surprising and you really do kind of see ghosts everywhere. And sometimes they're the ghosts you've brought with you. And sometimes they're ghosts of the past. And sometimes you feel I have an old friend who, who says um, that, you know, we always talk about the past pushing you along, but actually it's the future that drives you forward. And I, I feel that very much in Rome. And I think it was, Elizabeth Bowen, who I talk about quite a lot in this piece, who says it's important for everyone who comes to Rome to realize that just simply by being there, you become part of the history of the city. You're not a visitor. You're part of the history of of the Roman experience. Cynthia, would you shift over and read from Venice? Sure. This is near the very beginning of the piece, which is called Serene. The best way to approach Venice from the airport is to take the water taxi. It is also the most expensive. Like most things in Venice, there are convolutions before the payoff. There is no transport between the airport proper and the boat deck where the water taxis come in. You pull or carry your luggage down a long pathway, a distance of perhaps a quarter of a mile, following signs put up to encourage the traveler. This is the last direct route in Venice, the last walk on which not to get lost. At the dock, Manolo, the director of water traffic, talks endlessly into his cell phone, gesticulating about what seems to be nothing at all. He is a handsome man, taller than most Venetians, and indeed he is not from Venice, but from Naples. The company's logo is a winged lion, the symbol of Venice's patron saint, the Apostle Mark, who appears to the prophet Ezekiel as a lion with wings. The lion is often depicted over water to show dominance over the seas. The story of the winged lion is a fairy tale of guilt and chicanery. In the ninth century, three avid Venetians removed the body of St. Mark from his tomb in Alexandria. To hide the body, They put it in a basket and covered it with herbs and pork flesh, which Muslims would not touch. As they set sail for Venice, a great storm blew up, and St. Mark appeared to the captain who sailed the boat to safety. The Venetians carved the likeness of the winged lion on their doorways and kept lions as pets. One was kept in a gilded cage in the piazza until it died, poisoned by the gilt paint it licked off its bars a Venetian story. Lions were then forbidden in the city precincts for a hundred years. After a long wait, water taxis arrive and passengers board the boats in no discernible order. My suitcase is handed over. The lagoon straightens itself out briefly to funnel as it passes San Michele, the island of the dead. The boatman knows everyone on the waterway. 
He raises his hand in greeting to each boat as we pass. He is solicitous. If it is too windy, I can go in the cabin. It is windy, but I have wound a scarf around my head. He nods, satisfied. We pass through the fog, and then all at once it is there. The Grand Canal, beautiful and absurd. Can there really be gondolas? There are. A little boy waves from the window of the Vaporetto, a boy who looks exactly like the son who belongs to the face in the mirror I have left behind in New York. He keeps waving madly all the way until the taxi turns into the landing of the hotel on the Rio San Travazzo, right before the Ponte Academia. For a moment, it is all light and water. At the hotel, the hanging geraniums are violet, red, and pink. There is a little step down to the concierge desk, but despite the warning, I trip. Everyone trips. The pensione is like the water taxi, like Venice beautiful and impossible. In the garden, Bougainvillea hangs over the glider. A waiter brings you a delic- delicious snacks with your evening drink. And at breakfast, there is melon the color of a sunset. But you must log on with a different password every day to use the internet. Postage is carefully noted in a book. And the windows in your room, though you have asked to have them left open, are shut up tight against the air from the lagoon which, the chambermaid says, is not healthy for sleep. Signora, it will give you nightmares. Incubi. She makes a strangling gesture with her hands and rolls her blue eyes like a horror movie starlet. You have been here before? Yes, Guido at the, guest, at the desk asks. But with your husband, a man with silver hair, in a portrait of the brain made by phrenologists, the cerebral cortex, San Marco, is the location of the sublime. Venice is a city of the unconscious. On that note, I think, as you know, in a kind of wonderful, uh, kind of beautiful turn, these both of these books were printed by our printers in Verona, who are still working through the crisis in Italy and were working through the high point of those the horrors over there. And, um, and the book will come out once it arrives here in the States. Uh, but in the meantime, I think this is an amazing window into this beautiful project and also into your way of thinking about writing about cities and, and, and memory and feeling. So I wanted to say thank you, Cynthia, for taking the time. And I can't wait to see this book out in the world. Terrific. Okay, we'll talk soon. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.